Well, brethren, the Lord has been gracious to us in giving us night of rest. I trust you come this morning refreshed in body and in spirit, in mind, and in the language of David. I trust together we can say, hearken to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you shall hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer unto you. Let's order our prayer unto our God this morning, praying for grace to rest upon us throughout the ministries of this day. Let's pray together. Holy Father, how we thank you for the privilege of doing exactly what David did, lifting up our voices to you this morning, thanking you for the rest of the past night, for sustaining us in life and health, watching over us and bringing us here safely. And now we do order our prayer unto you. We look up into your countenance, and we plead with you, our Father, that this day you would give us the good gift of the outpoured Spirit upon our minds and our hearts, his presence and power resting upon me as I seek to instruct my brethren, his presence and power resting upon their minds and their hearts, that there may be a discerning spirit as we wrestle with these issues of what it means to preach your word in such a way as to glorify you and to do good to your people and to be instruments in your hands to call your elect unto yourself. So, our Father, turning away from all confidence in ourselves, we look to you for your promised blessing upon us, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 The preaching ministry of a servant of God is the most crucial and the most important part of his manifold public duties as an elder set apart to labor in the word and in doctrine. What the nurture of the inner life is with respect to the duties of the man of God with respect to himself, his preaching ministry is with respect to his public duties. Surely this fits the pattern of 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16, where Paul says to Timothy, pay constant and close attention to yourself and to the teaching. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those that hear you. Preaching, in the biblical sense of that word, is the most potent weapon in the arsenal of God for dismantling the kingdom of darkness and for establishing the kingdom of God's dear Son in the hearts of men. Therefore, it is of the utmost importance that we have a clear understanding of what preaching is, a clear understanding of what constitutes Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered, edifying preaching of the Word of God. 
and in making an attempt to come to some clear views as to those elements and qualities of real preaching, we're presently examining some general axioms which apply to the content and the form of all species of preaching, whether topical expository, whether textual expository, or consecutive exposition of the Word of God. And thus far, we've examined the first of seven axioms that we hope to cover in these days together, namely that the proclamation, explanation, and application of scriptural truth in the power of the Holy Spirit must constitute the heart and the soul of all of our preaching. In this hour, we take up the second axiom, which is this, that the proclamation, explanation, and application of scriptural truths most needed by our regular hearers must constitute our constant goal. Let me say just a word about the words in that axiom. It is the truths most needed by our hearers. And those will not necessarily be the truths that they desire. Your children might desire to feed constantly on ice cream, Twinkies, and Fruit Loops. But if you're a responsible parent, you don't give them what they most desire, but what they most need. And we find in the Scriptures clear indications that the writers of Scripture and those whose ministries are recorded in the Scriptures were sensitive to the needs of their hearers, and that sensitivity regulated what they communicated to their hearers. You'll remember that our Lord's ministry was marked by this element in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4 and verse 33. We read these very perceptive comments with respect to our Lord's ministry. And with many such parables, he spoke the word unto them as they were able to hear it. He was sensitive to their present capacities in terms of the content of his ministry. And then you remember in John sixteen twelve. Our Lord said, I have many things to say unto you, but you are not yet able to bear them. And he held back things that he desired to communicate, but they were not able to bear them. And so he did restrain himself from doing what he would have liked to do. I have many things to say to you, but he didn't say them. The writer to the Hebrews the same perspective in Hebrews chapter 5, having mentioned that our Lord Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he writes in verse 11 of Hebrews 5, of whom, that is, of Melchizedek, type of Christ, we have many things to say and hard of interpretation, seeing you are become dull of hearing. For when by reason of the time you ought to be teachers, you have need again that someone teach you the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of solid food. There was a sensitivity to where they were 
And the writer to the Hebrews conditioned what he said in terms of their spiritual capacity. And then again, you remember Paul in writing to the Corinthians. He tells them that he could not give them all that he would like to give them because their spiritual condition was such they had need of milk and could not take meat. So, when I use the term, it is the truths most needed by our hearers. On the one hand, it's not the truths that they most necessarily desire, or on the other, that we would most desire to give them, and that this concern must be our constant goal. As in all other things, we will not perfectly attain this goal, We'll not be perfect in our judgment, but at least this goal ought to be before us. Lord, help me to know what my people need at what time and in what circumstances and to regulate my ministry accordingly. Well, with that brief explanation of the words of the axiom itself, we're going to consider, first of all, the biblical basis for this axiom the fundamental principles operative in the application of this axiom, and then some general guidelines for the wise selection of our sermonic materials. First of all, then, the biblical basis for this axiom. In order to see and feel the pressure of this axiom, there are three categories of biblical data which we must seriously consider. And the first is, the nature of preaching in relationship to the prophetic office of Christ. One of the truths of Scripture, which I trust all of you hold dear, is the reality of the special presence of Christ in the appointed gatherings of his people. When the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 18:20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And when he is present, he is present exercising all of his prerogatives of his threefold office as both prophet, priest, and of king. In the Shorter Catechism, we have this question. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? And the answer, Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation, while he was among us, and his exaltation. While he is absent from us as to his bodily presence, but present by the Spirit. The next question, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Remember, in humiliation, exaltation, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. He exercises these offices by his word and by his spirit through the means ordained by him for the exercise of those offices. Now the clue to how he fulfills this prophetic office in his state of exaltation 
is seen in such words as are found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Each of the messages concludes with these words, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And what was the Spirit saying to the churches? He was speaking in those words embodied in those chapters. And that was the Spirit's present voice to all of the churches. The message to the church at Ephesus contained words that were to be heard by all of the churches. And likewise with Pergamos, Thyatira, etc. And in those words there are specific, pointed, tailor-made comforts, encouragements, rebukes, counsels, calls to repentance... General, sweeping, universal truths and principles to him that overcomes. I will give this and I will grant that. Further, the Apostle Paul was conscious when he wrote to the Corinthians, If any man is a prophet or spiritual among you, let him acknowledge that the things that I say are the commandments of the Lord. So that Preaching becomes the means of the exalted Christ to exercise his prophetic office when it is biblical, spirit-empowered preaching. But preaching also expresses his loving, nurturing, and cherishing of his church. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ continually nourishes and cherishes his church because we are united to him and as surely as no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, the apostle says, so Christ nourishes and cherishes his church because we are united to him. And he does that as a sensitive husband ministers to the needs of his beloved so Christ ministers to his beloved through the word and the spirit and thereby exercises his prophetic ministry among his gathered people. But then secondly, the implications of the pastoral office constitute a major pillar of support for this axiom, the implications of the pastoral office. If we are preaching as shepherds, then a sensitivity to the state of the flock is essential. Acts 20 and verse 28, where Paul says to the Ephesian elders that they are to take heed to the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, those who are looking over the flock of God. And surely when we read a passage such as John 10 or Psalm 23 in which the shepherd imagery of the ministry of Christ is captured, that element of sensitivity to the need of the flock is central in the ministry of the shepherd. If we are preaching as Paul did to the Thessalonians as fathers... What father is worth the name who is not sensitive to the specific needs of the specific children in his family? And Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 11, As you know how we dealt with each one of you as a father with his own children, exhorting you and encouraging you 
and testifying to the end that you should walk worthily of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we are not only shepherds among our people, sensitive to the need of the flock, we are fathers within the family of God. And that certainly seems to be the nuance of 1 Timothy 3, 5. If a man know not how to rule well his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Epimaleomai. The very verb used in the parable of the Good Samaritan, this bleeding, broken, bruised, battered man is brought to the inn, and these words are spoken, take care of him, be sensitive to his needs, apply the proper balm to his wounds, a splint to his broken bones, whatever is necessary, take heed of him. And then further, if we are preaching as governors, as rulers in God's house, then the condition of the spiritual commonwealth should be important to us. Remember them that have the rule over you, men that spoke unto you the word of God. Verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you and submit to them, for they watch for your souls as those that shall give an account. In short, All that we are as those occupying our pastoral office and functioning as elders laboring in the word and in doctrine demands this axiom that we be sensitive to the needs of our flock and seek to select sermonic materials that will address those needs, both immediate needs and long-term needs within the people of God. But then thirdly, the pattern of biblical preaching itself underscores this axiom. As we read the recorded sermons of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this pastoral concern coming to expression, for example, in the epistles of the New Testament. This principle is dominant in our consecutive reading through the epistles. In our Monday, uh, Sunday morning worship service, I constantly emphasize to our people, what was the pastoral need that precipitated this letter? You didn't have John or Paul getting up one morning, scratching their head and saying, well, I've got a couple of hours on my hand. You know, I think I'd like to write a letter to those people at Philippi or at Colossae or the churches in the uh, Ephesian area or John getting up one morning and say, it's been a while since the folk at Ephesus have heard from me. I think I'll write them a letter. No, there were immediate pressing pastoral concerns that precipitated those letters, the preacher's And writers of the Old and the New Testament address themselves to truths most needed by their hearers. We could not flip-flop Jeremiah with Isaiah or Zechariah with Haggai, though there was a similarity of burden and concern. Now granted, there are some fundamental differences They were under a qualitatively different mode of the Spirit's operation and influence than we are. That we're assuming. They had unique authority, either as prophets or as apostles or those whose writing was approved by the apostolic band. 
But there's an underlying principle that prophets, our Lord, and apostles wrote to immediate spiritual circumstances and needs. Surely then, in summary, brethren, this threefold witness cannot easily be pushed aside. The nature of preaching in relationship to the ongoing prophetic office of Christ, the implications of our identity in the pastoral office, and the pattern of biblical preaching, in my judgment, warrant the axiom that the proclamation explanation and application of the biblical truths most needed by our people must constitute our constant goal. Now, having set before you the axiom, a few words of explanation about the key words and its biblical basis, now let me set before you some basic principles relative to the selection of your sermonic materials. And I've divided the remaining materials into two categories. Number one, the fundamental biblical principles operative in a wise selection of sermonic materials. And then, as time permits, some general guidelines for the wise selection of sermonic materials. First of those two, the fundamental principle operative in a wise selection of sermonic materials. And you who have sat under my ministry in other contexts have heard this principle before, and no doubt you'll hear it again and again, even working through these seven axioms, and it is this, that there is a constant delicate interplay of the natural and the supernatural, of the divine and the human, of the mundane and the super mundane, of the rational, and then I'm going to use the word without embarrassment, of the mystical. The elusive dimensions of the Spirit's operation that I do not know how to identify in other, any other way but to call them a part of sane biblical mysticism. And we have such texts as these, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. The apostle writing to the Philippians says to them, As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Engage all of your faculties with the most intense seriousness in the working out of your salvation that has come to you by pure monergistic sovereign grace. Work it out and do it with all intensity, fear and trembling, with great solicitude of heart and mind, of desire to please and honor God. But do it in this confidence, for it is God who is constantly working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As you engage all of your faculties in the most intense, sober concern to please your heavenly Father, you may do so in the confidence that God is working in you, inclining your will and empowering you to do. Well, is God working or am I working? As I stand before you and seek to lecture slash preach this morning, is God working or am I working? It ain't either or. 
It's both. I work, having gotten up very early this morning and gone over for the third time in preparation for these lectures, every word of my manuscript. I have worked, and I'm working now. This old man is giving himself to what he's doing. But I'm doing it in the confidence that God is working in me both the will and the power to do. Because that's what God says. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things. Whew! What a statement of confidence, yes. But it's through him who strengthens me. I can do it. I do it. He doesn't do it for me. Or in the language of deeper life terminology, he doesn't live his life through me. You'll never find anything in the New Testament that said he lives his life through me. I can do. I do it. In the totality of what I am, in my redeemed humanity, mind and body and soul and emotions and affections, I do it. I can do. All things through him who strengthens me. Or I love 1 Timothy 2.7. Paul has used some images of the Christian life with Timothy and based some exhortations upon it. But then he says to him in 1 Timothy 2, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 7, consider what I say. And that verb consider means, Timothy, take your noggin and concentrate it on what I've said. Well, why should I do that, Paul? For the Lord shall give you understanding in all things. You exercise your mental faculties upon what I've said, but do it in the confidence the Lord will give you understanding. Not bypassing your mental exercises, but in the midst of them, making them effectual, that you might come to a clearer understanding of the meaning of my words. This fact alone should make us scared to death of any method or set of guidelines that does not give full room for the highest expression of spiritual dynamics coupled with the most intense application of personal, practical concern and activity. You have in your quotes a statement from Blakey that goes in a broader direction with respect to this principle, but I want to just read a section of it that highlights this delicate interplay of the natural and the supernatural. This result cannot be produced in any case without the agency of the Holy Spirit. It is never to be forgotten that in bringing it about, that divine person works by means which have even in themselves a fitness to secure the end in view. Now of these means, as far as they are connected with the Christian ministry, the sermon is the most important. And the preacher ought always to seek that his discourse shall have in it special adaptation to effect the result which at the moment he has set before him. And then he takes up the argument, well, does that not negate the work of the Holy Spirit that I'm working and I'm thinking and I'm trying to analyze and to identify what the real thrust and purpose of any given sermon is? And then he goes on to really 
lampoon the notion that, well, for us to be so engaged is to deny the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It seems, he says, very pious to be thus jealous for the honor of the Holy Spirit, but it is in reality very impious And the minister who seeks to glorify God by systematically neglecting the preparation of his discourses will find in the end that he has only covered himself with disgrace. So, brethren, in addressing this whole matter of the fundamental principles operative in a wise selection of sermonic materials, I plead with you to keep constantly before you This interplay between the natural and the supernatural. In the natural, we have different temperaments, different casts of mind. Some of you have a more poetic strain in the way you think. Some of you more logical. Some of you have an engineer's brain. Some of you have the imaginative brain of the dreamer. So in that area, this will affect how you function in selecting sermonic materials. And in the spiritual, we have to recognize the absolute sovereignty of God. The wind blows where it wills. And in his operations upon our own minds, our own hearts, there is the element of our present growth and insight, God's dealings with us. All of these things will enter in and will affect how we function in seeking to select sermonic materials appropriate to our people. Therefore, in the application of this fundamental principle, let me give some practical warnings. Number one, beware of the ironclad or inflexible rule makers. I've read books on preaching where people dogmatically say you ought to map out your preaching for an entire year and stick to it like it was the law of the Medes and the Persians. No counsels about being sensitive to what crises you may face and pass through in that year, what crises your people may face when you've locked into your commitment, stick to it. And some of the people who dogmatize and say there is no true preaching except consecutive expository preaching, I take umbrage with them. It is simply not true can't prove it from the scriptures. You can't prove it from the history of preaching. And then on the other end, you have those, as we'll see, uh, that are open to the impulsive and to the subjective continually and would say, as we're going to see Spurgeon says, waiting for that text, if you must wait till one hour before the service. Some of us would be in the nuthouse if we followed that counsel. So, Beware, beware of the ironclad, inflexible rule makers. Secondly, beware of a wooden inflexibility with your own plan. You are Christ's free man. And though with experience you will find yourself getting locked into a general set of principles with which you are comfortable in making wise, spirit-directed choices of sermonic material, don't allow yourself to be imprisoned by your own method. You may be comfortable with it, but the scripture says, quench not the spirit. Don't put out the fire of 
the Spirit, and there may be times when the Holy Spirit will powerfully brood over your own heart, constraining you to go in a direction that's contrary to your ordinary patterns. Thirdly, beware of copying others in seeking your own method. One man has written that the proper use of biography is not to copy great men, but to understand them. Not copy them, but understand them. So beware of copying others in seeking your own method. And then my final warning is to beware of the two great dangers. I'm calling one of them enthusiasm or fanaticism and rationalism. And what do I mean by enthusiasm, a word used by the older writers? By this I mean expecting and claiming a dimension of the Spirit's guidance in the matter of selecting sermonic materials which borders on expecting something very close to direct revelation. I was tyrannized by this for years. When I was in the itinerant ministry that I mentioned yesterday, there are times when I would spend three and four hours on my knees with my Bible. Lord, Lord, what's the text for tonight? What's the passage I ought to preach upon? What's the subject? Round and round and round, running down one rabbit trail after another. Instead of spending that time saturating my mind and spirit with a specific text, with a specific passage, and if some of us are put together in such a way that we're more vulnerable to that, this can be nothing short of tyranny. And it can also lead to nonsense. And this is where I do feel that who can say a word of a negative nature with Charles Spurgeon? Millions of people still reading his sermons. I almost feel dirty, but I have to do it. What's the right text? How do you know it? We know it by the sign of a friend. When a verse gives your mind a hearty grip from which you cannot release yourself, you will need no further direction as to your proper theme. Like the fish, you nibble at many baits, but when the hook has pierced you, you will wander no more. When the text gets hold of us, we may be sure that we have a hold of it and may safely deliver our souls upon it. To use another simile, you get a number of texts in your hand, and you try to break them up. You hammer at them with might and main, but your labor is lost at last. You find one that crumbles at the first blow, and sparkles as it falls in pieces, and you perceive jewels of the rarest radiance flashing from within. It grows before your eyes like the fabled seed which developed into a tree while the observer watched it. It charms and fascinates you, or it weighs you to your knees and loads you with the burden of the Lord. Know then that this is the message the Lord would have you to deliver, and feeling this, you will become so bound by that scripture you will never feel it rest until you've yielded your whole mind to its power and have spoken upon it as the Lord shall give you utterance. Wait for that elect word, even if you wait till within an hour of the service. 
This may not be understood by cool, calculating men out who are not moved by impulses as we are. But to some of us, these things are a law in our hearts against which we dare not offend. We tarry at Jerusalem till power is given. Now I have to say seriously, brethren, for that unusual man with that unusual mind, for that highly cultivated discipline, the man read five books every week. That may have been wonderful advice for Spurgeon to give to himself while looking in the mirror, but I believe to give that to immature young men could be disastrous. Could be disastrous. I put that in the realm of the enthusiastic or the fanatical. And you have a quote in there where Dr. Lloyd-Jones mentioned something very, very akin to that with respect to his series on uh, spiritual depression and uh, how he says at the end that the Holy Spirit gave him that series. It's language that at best is injudicious, and we must beware of that in our own hearts, especially When you're doing consecutive exposition, you will come to texts that are just plain slog and hard work to hammer it into something that's preachable. You might not get one goosebump during the whole exercise, whereas others will just come alive to you. And so we must be careful of enthusiasm or fanaticism. On the other hand, Let's be careful of a rationalism, and by this I mean an approach to selecting sermon materials without conscious dependence on God the Holy Spirit and earnest prayer for the help and direction of the Spirit. And I fear that men who commit themselves to a series of topical expositions or consecutive expositions often fall into this trap so that, all right, there's the next paragraph I've committed to preach through Ephesians, and don't once say, Lord, you know your people who will gather this Lord's Day morning. You are their great prophet. Lord Jesus, do you have a word to say to them that is not in the next passage in Ephesians? Some other theme, some other portion that would be your word to some distressed and struggling saint, to some careless sinner. Oh God, if so, direct me before I plunge into my exegetical work in Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. Lord, direct me. Give me wisdom to know. I fear that when men get locked into consecutive exposition, they don't even pause to pray that simple one-minute prayer. That's a form of rationalism, brethren. We need to constantly remember who we are as we anticipate standing in the gathering of God's people with the promised presence of Christ ministering to his people in his state of exaltation as a prophet through your preaching ministry. Now then, let me address thirdly some general guidelines for wise selection of sermonic materials. I've tried to show the biblical basis for the axiom, some fundamental principles operative in the application of the axiom. Now, very quickly, some general guidelines for wise selection of sermonic materials, themes or texts, books to preach through, and I have five such guidelines. Number one, 
Seek to be consistently prayerful for divine guidance in this matter. The awareness that in great measure the health and the well-being of our people is dependent upon the spiritual food that we give them should make us cry out continually in the language of 2 Corinthians 2.16b, who is sufficient for these things? And it will drive us to lay hold of James 1.5 again and again. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. I've often said to relatively young converts, I said, if there are any verses in the Bible, you can't plead them anymore because you've used them too often. 1 John 1.9 and James 1.5 would be two texts that would be off the chart for me. If we confess our sins... How often, if I had to plead it before God, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And then we have a text many of us memorized when we were just out of the womb spiritually. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. What a curse upon a people whose prayerless parson serves up sermons precipitated by the whim of a moment or the dictates of Lord convenience and king expediency. Could it be that our lack of divine guidance in selecting sermonic materials is rooted in a text like James 4? And verse 4, you have not because you ask not. Then the second word of counsel is this. Seek to be aware of and sensitive to the needs of the flock of God. To shepherd the flock is to lead, to guard, to feed them. Therefore take seriously the admonition given with respect to a man's literal flock of sheep as it's found in Proverbs 27, 23. Solomon exhorts such literal shepherds, be diligent to know the state of your flocks. And you and I need to be diligent to know where our people are. William Gurnall, in his massive treatise, The Christian in Complete Armor, writes, The preacher must read and study his people as diligently as any book in his study. And as he finds them dispense like a faithful steward unto them. As he finds them, dispense unto them. The Apostle Paul is the great example of this principle in action. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. 28, among all of the trials that he faces, and he says, and above all these things, and in addition to them, anxiety, for all the churches. The very thing he forbids in the Philippian letter. Same word used. Be anxious for nothing. He says, I have anxiety for the churches. And how did he have it? Because he kept in touch with what was going on in the churches. The household of Chloe. Rats on the Corinthians. And tells him what's going on there. There is the constant communication that he might know the state of of his flocks. Hence, as we've already noted, 
Those epistles are pastoral responses to perceived and real need. Or in the so-called pastoral epistles, there is a representative response to known need. I've left you, Timothy, there at Ephesus to ordain elders. I've charged, I'm sorry, Titus 1.5 to Timothy. He said to shut the mouths of those gainsayers that you are to secure and to perpetuate doctrinal orthodoxy or chapter 3, 14 and 15, behavior in the house of God. And our Lord himself is our pattern as well. The Sermon on the Mount contrasting his kingdom and its religious perspectives with the life and the perspectives of the Pharisees. His upper room discourse to comfort his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion and his soon departure. Richard Baxter in the Reformed Pastor writes, I confess I think necessity should be the great disposer of a minister's course of study and labor. If we were sufficient for everything, we might attempt everything and take in order the whole encyclopedia. But life is short and we are dull and eternal things are necessary. And the souls that depend on our teaching are precious. I confess necessity has been the conductor of my studies in life. It chooses what book I shall read, tells me when and how long. It chooses my text and makes my sermon both for matter and for manner. So far as I can keep out my own corruption. We need to know if our people have been crippled by dispensationalism, by a feelings religion, if some of them are feeling the pressures of current winds blowing through evangelicalism, to be sensitive to that and let that dictate what we preach to them. And then there are those times of specific and critical needs, a crisis of discipline, a major building program, a major congregational crisis. I'm amazed how some men go plowing right on. The next text in Ephesians, in Ephesians. When the whole congregation, their minds and hearts are taken up with something that has impacted them tremendously. What a wonderful opportunity to say, what does God have to say in the midst of this crisis? What is the word of the Lord? They come on that Lord's day. Their hearts deeply agitated and and disrupted. We need to bring the word of God to bear upon it. And then there are those occasional national needs. When a country is thrust into war, the death of an eminent saint among us, some crisis that draws the minds of the people unavoidably in a given direction. We need to, as it were, sit on that and go with it and bring the word of God to bear upon it. If you're to be taking your sermonic indicators from the needs of your people, then certain things must be true of you. You must have a cultivated alertness to need. Keep your antenna out. You must be in contact with your people. You must cultivate good communication with your fellow elders. And even though Owen held in part to a three-office view of the eldership, he makes a very telling comment on this very point. It is their duty, he's saying your 
other elders who do not labor in the word and in doctrine according to the advantage which they have by their peculiar inspection of all the members of the church, their ways, their walking, to acquaint the pastors or teaching elders of the church with the state of the flock, which may be of singular use to them for their direction in the present work of the ministry. He who makes it not his business to know the state of the church which he ministers unto in the word and doctrine as to their knowledge, their judgment and understanding, their temptations and occasions, and applies not himself in his ministry to search out what is necessary and useful unto their edification, he fights uncertainly in his whole work as a man beating the air. But whereas their obligation, that is the teaching elders, to attend to the word in prayer, confines them much unto a retirement for the greatest part of their time, they cannot by themselves obtain that acquaintance with the whole flock, but that others may greatly assist therein from their daily inspection, converse, and observation. And so we've got to cultivate good communication with our fellow elders, and then keep in touch with the general currents of thought which influence your people. This means there has got to be some method of being aware of the currents that are operative there in society in general, in the religious world in particular. But now I must hasten. I'm coming up near the end of my time allotment, We must thirdly seek to be sensitive to God's dealings with our own hearts and our own minds. While we must never preach ourselves, we do preach out of ourselves, that is, out of the crucible of our own dealings with God. For the apostle who says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach ourselves in the first chapter of that same letter, he said, I don't want you ignorant of our recent trial. We despaired even of life, but the God who raises the dead met us in our point of need. You don't preach yourself, but you preach out of yourself. And as you assimilate the word for your own soul, verses, books of the word, themes and subjects will grip you. As you do your general reading of the masters in Israel, some things will come with peculiar grip and bite to your own soul. Don't be insensitive to those things in selecting your sermonic materials. Counsel number four, seek to be sensitive and accurate with respect to your own development as a preacher. Romans 12 exhorts us in verse 3, to take sober assessment of who and what we are. As opera singers wait for the maturation of their voices before they attack certain roles, so preachers should realistically assess where they are in their development. And in a real sense, we're never ready, yet we must have a consciousness of where we are in our development and what it is wise to attempt to bring to our people. The preacher who starts in his first pastorate to preach through Hebrews or Romans in the morning and the Song of Solomon in the evening is either brilliant or he's a fool. One or the other. One or the other. 
A man that starts in that way is unwise. We must stretch ourselves, stir up the gift of God that is in us, as Paul said, but be wise in terms of assessing where we are. I've not yet felt that I could preach through Hebrews and keep my people interested. Every time I've attempted to, I've just drawn back. Now, some of you preach through Hebrews. I don't judge you. You may have much to teach me, but I've just said I don't know how I could do it in a popular way, in the truest sense of that word. And then fifthly, Seek to be sensitive to the reaction of your people. We are not men-pleasers in the wrong sense. Galatians 1, Ted says, If I should yet please men, I should not be the servant of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1. Paul eschews any thought of being a man-pleaser. But we must not ignore whether the true sheep are feeding and profiting from what we're giving them. Some men have this idea, well, the Lord's burdened me for this and I'm going to preach it if everybody falls asleep and people begin to leave the church and begin to grumble. I'm not a man pleaser. I'm a servant of God. Well, if Paul is concerned that a benevolent offering be acceptable to the saints at Jerusalem, Romans 15, 31, he says, pray that the offering may be acceptable to the saints. How much more should we be concerned that our ministry be acceptable to the true people of God? So listen to the feedback of your fellow elders. And here I skip over the many quotes that I have. You have them there. Be sensitive to whether or not the ministry in a given area is profiting your people. Seek the feedback of the spiritually minded people in the flock. The length of the sermons, the clarity of expression. Pray, Lord, clothe me with rhinoceros hide. And then ask them. Because so many of us are fearful to ask because we're insecure. And we need to pray that God will deliver us from that. Well, in summary, in Brooks' lectures on preaching, he has a number of heads of the benefits of being sensitive to our people. I just go back over with you these five heads that I've laid before you. Seek to be consistently prayerful, sensitive to the needs of the flock, sensitive to God's dealings with your own heart, sensitive to your own development as a preacher, sensitive to the reaction of the flock of God. Amen.